Hello, I'm Kelly Fitzpatrick with Red Monk. Welcome to The Docs Are In, the series where we sometimes talk about documentation and we sometimes talk to people with, with doctorates. Our topic today is WebAssembly, or W-A-S-M pronounced as WASM, and or philosophy. And with me today is Matt Butcher, the CEO of Fermion. Matt, it is a delight to have you here today. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you know, right now I'm the CEO of Fermion, but if I rewind sort of backward in life, uh, I got into software development when I was in high school by a fluke. Uh, I, I landed at the wrong job and I uh, thought I was going to be mowing lawns and instead ended up doing some software development. But even in high school, my big interest had was more philosophy related. Uh, so when I graduated high school, even though I was comfortable with, with programming and things like that, I ended up going into philosophy uh, and then just ended up using this whole computery thing to kind of pay my way through school and ended up doing a bachelor's, then a master's, then a PhD in philosophy. And, you know, all along the plan was, OK, I'll come out with a PhD. I'll become a professor. I will live in the hollowed halls of academia forever and ever. Amen. Uh, and I got into teaching and I was like, wow, this, this whole philosophy thing really does kind of go slowly. And I'm kind of used to software where new and exciting things are happening all the time. And uh, I ended up kind of drifting back out of philosophy and back into software development. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately that led us, that led me to a couple of startups that ended up getting acquired by big companies. And I ended up at Microsoft and then uh, decided a couple of years ago to kind of take the leap with a, with a group of 10 others. And, uh, and we started Fermion to build the next wave of cloud computing with WebAssembly. And that I feel like anyone who comes on the show, I should probably be like, so did you end up getting into tech to pay your way through grad school or like anyone who has like any type of like humanities <laughs> degree? Um, Cause that's, you know, that's, that's certainly the what I did. The story behind it is, yeah, I had too much college debt and the only way to ever pay it off. <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel, I, I also feel like the lawn mowing and then it ends up being more of a, a kind of getting into software beat and switch job as, as like at a young age was probably also, you know, the really formative formative for you I, yeah it was uh, it was kind of a funny story because you know my I, I got hired at the local municipal utilities company uh and my dad set up the whole interview and and then you know i, I went in and they asked me a bunch of questions about yard care but i never <laughs> being young thought to ask what the actual job was i was being hired for so when I came in on my first day and they said, what's your name? And I said, Matt, and they ushered me to this cubicle and got me all plunked down at a computer and everything. I just thought it was a weird job interview. It took like two or three months before somebody told me, actually, there were two people hired named Matt and you were assigned the wrong job. And, you know, this other Matt never showed up. And uh, so it was kind of one of those situations where... Uh, I, I don't think I ever would have chosen that for myself. I think I wouldn't have ever even applied for a job that I thought was computer related when I was in high school. I was more kind of like the, the lawn mowing kid. <laughs> but I do feel like that, that prepared you for all of the weird, bizarre whiteboard interviews that the tech industry likes to do. So it's like, so like, you know, imagine you're coming in, you're, you're, you're being interviewed for like a, a tech job. And it's like, tell, tell us what you know about lawn care. That just seems like one of the random things we like to stump people with like in, in the tech industry. I mean, yeah, a friend of mine was asked, you know, 
describe making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for one of her programming interviews. Uh, and yeah, I, I suppose, you know, describe how you'd mow the lawn wouldn't be that far off from that kind of programming interview. Yeah. So like early on, it's like you were destined for, for I think, this industry. It's a way, way shape or, or form. But I, I want to I go back to the philosophy part. Um, so like, I, I want to hear a little bit more about like your, your work in philosophy, especially I know one of your specializations was like philosophy of computers and information. Um, and, mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about that. And like how, how you gave us like the kind of logistics of how you got from that to being the CEO of, of Fermion, but like, tell us a little bit more about like, almost like the intellectual pathway. Oh yeah, sure. Um, these days in philosophy, there are kind of two major, I guess you'd call them strains of philosophy. There's a, you know, analytic or Anglo, Anglo-American philosophy. And then there's, uh, I, I should say this, I should have said it this way. In philosophy, there are two strains in Western philosophy uh, that that tend to sort of dominate the landscape, uh, and that's uh, Anglo-American philosophy, which is also called analytic, and then continental philosophy, which is often where you're talking about, you know, Sartre and phenomenology and existentialism and Heidegger and and on into postmodernism and Deleuze and Guattari and things like that. Uh, and so when you get into, when you're finishing your undergrad, you kind of have to make a decision about which of those two kinds of schools of thought you want to go into because in fact most schools are sort of most graduate schools are sort of bifurcated along those lines uh and i came into uh my grad school hunt uh more in favor of uh continental philosophy Uh, i've done a lot of work on existentialism and phenomenology really into phenomenology um, and I, there's, an, I could explain all these terms, but it's actually, uh, let's just get to the punchline. And, but, but I feel um, like, so, so, you know, like, like a little background, like I, my, my background is like in English studies or literary studies, and we love content mm-hmm. philosophy. We're like, we're like, we right. love theory. We love all that stuff. I, I feel like some of our viewers out there would be like, yes, I know this. Some people out there are like, why are you talking about this? Please never talk about this again. Um, but, but sorry, I did interrupt you, but, but. Yeah, no, and there, there you go, right? And that's yeah, and and I think you can kind of look at Descartes the way Descartes did philosophy, and you can actually see the branch, right? So Descartes, famous for some of his mathematical formulations, famous for a lot of his very rationalist looking at things, but Descartes is also famous uh, for you know starting from cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, and going from that into what's called a constructive metaphysics, right, where he began to sort of say postulate this is what reality is like. And I think that's a good way to look at the fork in the road that is analytic versus continental. Analytic or Anglo-American is very focused on rigor, logic, definitions, uh, you know, taking an argument and analyzing it until you're sure you sort of squeezed every last bit of analysis out of the argument, or you're looking at somebody else's analysis and poking and prodding at it until you find even the most minute hole and then sort of exposing that hole and talking about what that means. Continental philosophy really took the other strand of Descartes, right, and said, okay, well, there's, there's what, how do we approach the universe around us? And, and how do we describe the experience of being a human being in a cosmos that's essentially unknowable to us? And so you get out of that, you go with the restraints of phenomenology, which is very much oriented mm-hmm. around what does it mean to exist in the world, right? How do I experience the world around me? On into postmodernism, where you start to critique, uh, can we even make meaningful assertions about this that are anything more than conjecture that are likely very personal in nature? Uh, and, and so you get sort of, again, like in analytic philosophy, it's 
constructing arguments and poking holes at argument. In continental philosophy, you sort of see, uh, you know, constructing worldviews and then sort of poking holes in whether or not we as human beings can uh, adequately develop any meaningful metaphysics or any meaningful epistemology, uh, any, any meaningful statements about the world around us. And I was way more into that uh, to that latter, uh, trend when I got, got going in grad school. Um, again, also having this background in computer science, which of course is on the other side of the Cartesian di dichotomy, right? Very much on the rationalist side. Um, so I ended up picking a school, Loyola University in Chicago, that was known for being fairly pluralistic, uh, in the sense that their faculty, they had very strong analytic philosophers, very strong continental philosophers, and a pretty good array of other kinds of philosophy in there as well. I think it might have the country's foremost dental ethics program, which, believe it or not, is a fascinating field. Today I learned uh, that field very exists. Well school. <laughs> like now, now I know that is a thing. I mean, when you think about it, I guess anytime you're putting sharp objects in someone's mouth, you should have some ethical. <laughs> I never, I can't say I ever understood much of the nuance of it, but there was a lot of stuff there that uh, we had very successful people go through that program and on into the field. Uh, and people came to Loyola specifically to study dental ethics. It was fascinating. But from there, then, so I, I came in, you know, feeling very continental, started studying in that, uh, in, in that uh, particular school. Uh, really enjoyed a lot of it. But as I got going, um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of in the background, kind of, you know, hacking on things here and there and and doing five-hour contracts here and writing tech books there. So uh, supporting your grad I, school I, life by doing, by doing right. work in the tech yeah, industry. Yeah. Because yeah. that quote-unquote full-ride scholarship doesn't really... <laughs> It's totally fine if you want to live off of a dried bag of rice for four years, but <laughs> uh, but I that was kind of starting to tug at me, and I was starting to think about uh, metaphysics and the construction of the world and software development as as far as like a sort of constructive metaphysics where you actually have sort of an experimental playground where you can build a system and see how it works. And so I got. I, I really kind of the computer stuff kind of pulled me back into uh, thinking about uh, that, how analytic philosophy was approaching the world, right? And why you would analyze the world in a particular way and why, you know, logicians like Frigga and Russell and Whitehead were so set on attempting to build an abstract symbolic system that they felt could represent in some meaningful way, at least some important facts about the universe. Uh, and so you know, here I am like two, two and a half years in writing my, finishing up my master's thesis and going, I don't, I, I think this computer philosophy thing is where I really want to go. Uh, and so I started hunting around the department to find anybody who would support a dissertation on this. Uh, because as, as you know, right, you got to find somebody who's going to be your champion. And then you got to find four other people or three other people who will sit in there and, and at least read part of your dissertation. And they have to somehow um, get along with each other well enough to sit in that room together, <laughs> which is always I think it's, it's a tricky part when you're talking about things like that. And with it, with yeah. this, this kind of analytical philosophy and continental philosophy split, too, I think it's interesting because it's like, I know that in in like English studies and literary studies, there can be like factions where it's like you can't put these people oh. in the same because they will just they will just start arguing. Yes. Like, did, did you have to deal with any of that? 
oh yeah i mean you know and, and it's it's nice to tell a very simple story about you know and then i realized computer science was better for me part of it though really was the fact that i never felt particularly 100 comfortable in either tradition and there mm -hmm. is a lot of i would say i would go one step further in saying you know it can border on animosity right you can actually you can actually i sat in meetings where people ended up standing up and yelling at each other uh, where a conversation started out about who's bringing the cheese to the next meeting. And by the end, people are yelling at each other about worldviews and things like that. Uh, and, and it was just, there was some deep, and this was not like every faculty meeting no. by any means, right? These were rarer occurrences, but there, there were strong, strong opinions about it. And, you know, part of that comes as a territory of being a PhD, right? Uh, you, you spend the goal for, for those of you who, who would like my view of what a PhD is, right? The goal is, you want to become the expert or or one of the experts in some often very, 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 very narrow topic. And so you're really pouring your heart and your soul into this. And it shapes your beliefs whether you want it to or not, right? It shapes your beliefs about the importance of your views. And, you know, you pile onto that anything that takes into account uh, humanity at its core, which is probably all academic disciplines, but it's definitely more on the liberal arts and sciences side, right? Mm -hmm. You, you also come to the belief and or realization, depending on how you'd like to parse that out, that what you're saying has importance to people, right? That, that when you're talking about history, you're talking about, you know, the forces that shaped who humanity is today. When you're talking about psychology, you're talking about the internal state of human beings that causes us to act in the rational and irrational ways that we do. When you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about Something about the construction of the cosmos and the construction of the of, of rationality that has to do with how we're going to survive as a species together on into the future. And so it's it's I think it's normal that when you hyper focus and you start to study these things, um, things that for other people, for outsiders would appear to be minute disagreements of yeah. of of a technical knit are to you a deeply foundational principle or point that you that you feel obligated to defend because of its potential impact on on you know the world that we're in uh and and i think that definitely can lead to some splits and with analytic and continental philosophy you definitely saw that become one of those things where on one hand you have people who say reality is a construction that can be described best in propositional logic and we need to you know root out all of the inconsistencies in our language and try and get as rational as we can and on the other hand a group of people who are going the cosmos is a beautiful unknowable place the world is a beautiful and unknowable place we can take some artistic liberties in interpreting something in order to give our lives meaning in this space and the two of those schools are not going to walk into a room and, and agree on anything apparently from which cheese you're going to bring to the next meeting to uh, you know, what an ethical system is and what the proper foundations for, for ethics are. And that those are really big deals. Well, the cheese thing, not so much. Well, no, I think the cheese <laughs> thing is a big deal. Like what cheese you bring, it can, it can matter, right? Whether people show up. Um, and I, it, it does strike me as, because I think you had earlier on, you had mentioned that, you know, so like tech industry computers as fitting more into the analytical side, but like more, like the more and more you talk about it, it's, it's kind of like that continental side and the idea of reality and our perception of it and how it's shaped. Um, you know, buy things like technology. It's, it's, it, I, I know that there's like that, that almost like bifurcation, but at the same time, the tech industry, I think would be, it benefits from both of these ways of looking at the world. I, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, 
I, I think even continental philosophers have done themselves a disservice in this regard. And that, you know, going back to uh, someone like Heidegger, who appeared at least in like the question concerning technology to be sort of anti-technology and for good reason, or someone like uh, Baudrillard, who uses technology as sort of like a cudgel for the fact that we're, we're you know, floating in, in a space we've invented that might not reflect the reality that is, you know, most impactful on our bodies or, or you know, something like that, right? Uh, I think continental philosophy has done itself a little bit of a disservice in distancing itself from what we are learning about ourselves as a, as a species and about what our power is in the world when we, when we don't talk about, you know, when we're doing software development right? What are we actually doing? You know, what are we doing when we translate a language of abstract symbols that are really way more what the analytic tradition would be like, oh, yes, this is home. Uh, but we're, we're doing something interesting with that, right? Because we're trying to describe a world that doesn't exist. And we constantly use metaphors in this world that we're creating to try and tie it to the one that, that, that we are comfortable existing in. Um, and I can give you a really dumb and trivial example, but it's one that will immediately, you know, s uh, stand out to all of us because we all do some shopping online, right? Yeah. And I, th this is the realization that hit me. I'm writing an application, building a thing that I have called a shopping cart. And I'm like, you know, philosopher me is like, this is not a shopping cart. You know, it's a little voice on my shoulder. This is not a shopping cart. This is not a shopping cart. You're basically like, you know, creating a... A, a list of numeric indexes that point to things. A shopping cart is a metal thing with wheels on it that you scoot down an aisle and you drop physical objects in it. And yet, you know, at the same time, we all go to Amazon and we shop and we know what it means to put something in our shopping cart, even though, you know, other than a little bit of skeuomorphism here and there where you got a little shopping cart icon or something, there's nothing in my shopping cart on Amazon that even comes close to resembling the shopping cart that we have in the physical space. And, you know, those kinds of realizations, when I, when I hit those, I'm going, okay, so a big part of software development at a philosophical level is attempting to construct systems, abstract systems mm -hmm. that perform according a certain number of steps according to a predetermined logic. But another part of it is attempting to build a space that is comfortable for us as humans to approach and participate in. Right. Uh, if we if we'd called it a finagle instead of a shopping cart, then it, we would have had to train everybody. OK, so a finagle is where you put the SKU IDs that attach to the shipping codes that will get you a thing, you know, and, and the conceptual overhead in doing so would have turned everybody off from Amazon back when it was a little bookstore and yeah. probably would continue to present challenges. And I feel like uh, those, and so, so that kind of yeah, and those those translations are fascinating too because like I can imagine a, a time where we're no longer even using actual physical shopping carts, right? It's almost like the the save disc being <laughs> you know like you know like the floppy disk being the icon for save, and there are generations oh. of of people out there now who are like, oh, what is that? What is that? Where did we get this? Somebody made a three D representation of the save exactly. icon. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's and that's part of Baudrillard's kind of critique yeah. of reality. So very famously, you know, he talked about humans are creating a sort of hyper reality yep. around ourselves. And his the the image that always sticks with me from Baudrillard is he talks about Disneyland and he's talking about how Disneyland sort of encapsulates the idea of hyper reality. So he says, you know, hyper reality is humanity's attempt to sort of divorce itself from nature and to do so 
in order to exert control over the environment in which we live. And, and it sort of builds on Heidegger's idea that we commoditize nature, right? We turn nature into raw material and then we create something new with that. And for Baudrillard, you know, we don't, we don't hike in the mountains anymore, right? We might think we do, but we're always staying on a, on a trail, right? And we're following all these signs. We're living a very carefully curated experience of nature. And to him, Disneyland is this par excellence, right? Because here, not even the mountains are real. They're made out of plaster and fiberglass and the plants are plastic or, you know, carefully selected and, and put in little pots that are hidden inside of plastic pockets in the side of the of fake, of fake uh, what's, what's the mountain roller coaster ride at Disneyland? You know, whatever that is. And, and that idea is very much what we're doing with software, I think, as well. We're creating a sort of hyper, maybe a hyper, hyper reality in this case uh, that, that is just utterly divorced from, from or, or in Baudrillard's sense, right? Utterly divorced from the laws of nature that are scary and we're not the laws of nature. It's nature itself, yeah. right? It's the terror of the storm coming over the mountain when you realize all you got on is a raincoat, right? And, and the, the snow is going to start dumping down on you. Sorry, it's Colorado and it's cold right now. The snow is going to dump down on you and you're going to be stuck in nature and there's nothing you as a human being solitary in nature can do about it. That's the scary part. And, you know, Baudrillard is saying we can build ourselves a nice, comfy, um, you know, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the ride, Matterhorn. We can build ourselves a nice, comfy Matterhorn mountain at Disneyland where the snow is fake and the trees are curated and I can go around in a two and a half minute roller coaster ride and come out exhilarated and yet unscathed and then i then uh, i can do and, my and drinking in some ways that's what we're doing no, and it's like then i can go do my drinking around the world um and you know in Epcot. <laughs> yeah. and it's like you know that very created and very very selective idea of the world as well that you can you can kind of access and i just i want to go on record as being like i am not the one who introduced Baudrillard into this conversation because um <laughs> like, like it was not me um i i I have a book where I talk about Baudrillard quite a bit because I talk about um, like oh really yeah so what oh. like what you're talking about in terms of like our understanding of like the Middle Ages and the, like mm -hmm. the way people understand the Middle Ages now is not even through this like this reality that you can kind of access even that's even possible it's like there's something like like this is a little old school like uh, example but mm -hmm. say like World of Warcraft or you know all these type of um, almost like video games yeah. or or other experiences that you have that create this understanding of what they think the, the middle ages are, even though they're not really that they're not even saying they're based on the middle ages, <laughs> which is, which is kind right. of fascinating. Um, so I, and we're going to move away from majority. I don't want to just because I was, I, I was, I was going to go, I just <laughs> finished the wheel of time and oh. it took me the entirety of last year to read the wheel of time. Like all, um, like all of the I books, feel like all of them. I, yeah. I finished the, the 14, I what 14,000 pages, whatever that is of, uh, and this is, this is like how I decompress at this point is like, okay, I'm going to completely break with reality. And, but it was such a good example because, uh, Robert Jordan is like plucking out little bits of different mythologies and different chunks of history from the Eastern and Western world and sort of glomming them all together and inventing a world. And at some point you start to recognize this and I know he's toying with me, right? <laughs> I know he's like, oh, this is our theory and legend. Oh, wait, this character represents Thor. Oh, wait a minute. So, you know, and you, down from the symbol to the eyes that, that the eyes that I have is, you know, drawn out of Taoist. Uh, and that's, that's, so now I'm kind of resonating here. I can kind of see the Baudrillardian undertones in something like this, where you're constructing uh, an environment that at once feels familiar. Again, like skeuomorphism in, in our shopping cart yeah. example, right? 
but at the same time feels exotic and new and exciting and none of the day-to-day trials and travails of being a peasant in a field come into play exactly. anywhere in any of these 14 books, right? So it turns to something where it's like, I can get the book on tape or, you know, audiobook and like, you know, put it on my, um, you know, my iPod and go for a run and just like completely get, get out of like your everyday, your yep. everyday life. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, that's why we do it, right? Because it helps us. I don't have to think about, you know, that email I shouldn't have sent or, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to, what I'm going to do tomorrow and how I'm going to make it through those meetings, that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's an escape. Reading about the feudal peasantry would probably not at all be an escape for me. I don't know about you. I, I, some of us have chosen weird paths in life, but uh, I feel <laughs> I, I agree that for most people, that's probably not not the version of the medieval that they <laughs> they want in order to you know escape from their their day to day. But kind of getting getting back more to your day to day, I want to make sure we do talk a little bit about about awesome. Um, simply mm-hmm. because it's like I, I feel like the the overlap of these two things, philosophy and awesome. It, it just fast. They both fascinate me. So I want to make sure we talk about both. Um, for folks who don't uh, who don't already know what WebAssembly is, and I feel like some people are probably listening to this for the WebAssembly, and they're like, "Finally, we've got through all this philosophy stuff." There are other people <laughs> here who are here for the philosophy, or here, you know, because uh, from from the academic perspective, um, who might not understand WASM at all. How would you explain that to them, like in, in a nutshell? So WebAssembly, in a nutshell, is a very kind of boring idea that gets intriguing the longer you stare at it, right? Not much like philosophy. Um, In essence, uh, when we write software, we compile it to a particular uh, uh, underlying architecture. You know, if I'm building software for my Mac, I compile it for my Mac. If I'm building software for my Windows machine, I compile it for Windows uh, WebAssembly, the core idea is that you should be able to write code and compile it to a particular binary format, an executable format that can run in a variety of different places. Uh, that piece is by no means brand new or startling or anything like that because Java has done that in the past. .NET has done that in the past. Uh, but WebAssembly took a very different security posture, and that's what kind of makes it interesting. I know I just said security and interesting, but bear with me for a moment. I, I, I swear. Um, so WebAssembly was designed originally to run inside of a web browser. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing code for your web browser, you're pretty much writing it in JavaScript. JavaScript is a great general purpose language, but is not a panacea of a language, right? Uh, you might want to do some you know, heavy-duty mathematical computing that needs to happen fast. JavaScript doesn't tend to be a great language for that, whereas languages like C or Rust, they tend to be much mm-hmm. better. Um, or, or, or another way to look at the same problem would be to say, Also, if we're going to do everything in JavaScript, what do we do with all that old C code that's lying around? And so out of these kinds of difficulties, uh, a group of individuals from first uh, uh, Mozilla, but then from Mozilla, uh, the IE team at the time at Microsoft and the Safari team at Apple and the Chrome team at Google, they all got together and said, okay, we can define a common binary format that can run in the browser and we'll make it so that lots and lots of different languages can compile to that format. And then we can use the right language for the job and we can reuse some of those old C libraries from JavaScript and and do some cool and exotic things like that. So the technology had to accomplish a few things in order to be useful in a browser. First one is security, right? Uh, What you do not want to happen is to download some binary off the internet and have it you know, get all your passwords and send them off to some sketchy website somewhere or do anything like that. So you need a really good security sandboxing layer. Uh, And you need one in which the person writing the outside code in the browser has some abilities to control what the security boundaries are, but that ultimately there's sort of like an outer impermeable boundary that that prevents either the JavaScript code or the binary code from 
getting at your system and doing nefarious things. Uh, so that was feature number one. Uh, then there's this performance feature. It's got to be really fast because we are very impatient. And if our web pages take a long time to load, we go and shop somewhere else. Uh, you know, we, we need this kind of cross architecture, cross platform so that I compile it once and it can run on an ARM architecture, an Intel architecture, whatever, same with mm -hmm. operating systems. So it had all these features that made it really a really good fit for a browser. Now, I came to this from the cloud world where I was going, uh, you know, what, what do we do in the cloud? The cloud is basically least compute. Uh, we give you, I was at Azure at the time in Microsoft. And the kind of thing is we give you a computer or a slice of a computer or something that you don't get really any access to, right? It's sitting in a data center somewhere, somebody else is maintaining it, but you get to kind of lease the computing power, the CPU, the memory, the storage, and so on. And, uh, and and we'd already built a couple of technologies in that space, right? There's virtual machines mm -hmm. that are kind of like the big run the operating system from kernel all the way to application with everything in between these massive images. Uh, then we had started building this container ecosystem, which I'm very familiar with having come from the Docker and Kubernetes space. And that's sort of like you take this little pie shaped slice of the operating system and you bundle it up and you can move it around and run that in places. But we're looking at this problem space where we're going what we really need is sort of a third way. So we got kind of a heavyweight virtual machine class, a middleweight container class. We need some kind of lightweight class where we're going to be able to move these applications around inside of the data center. Because again, at Microsoft, we're thinking, how do we get your compute onto the cheapest possible but still performing unit of compute? We got, you know, an eighth of a computer sitting over here doing nothing. How do we occupy that just long enough to pay a couple of bills and then we'll free it up and, and lease it to somebody else for something else? Um, and so that was kind of the original approach to this. And WebAssembly ended up being a really good fit for this problem because the security model is there, which is the number one for all cloud computing. You do not want to lease your computer to somebody and have them be able to use that as a way to attack you or attack one of your other customers. Uh, and, and so security was checked. Performance was the big one that we were after. And then this idea of cross-platform, cross-architecture meant that we could take a, a platform-independent binary, and if we had a chunk of a Windows server running on an Intel machine available, we could run it there. Uh, but if that, you know, we, if that became unavailable, we could run it on that Linux one on an ARM processor. And essentially, we could shift the workloads to the most cost-effective place to go. And that's really what kind of got us going on WebAssembly. And the more we got into it, the more we thought, oh, this is actually a very, very powerful technology that can, be, that can solve a wide variety of problems. So about 10 of us left Microsoft uh, joined one non-Microsoft person and we started Fermion in late 2021 with this idea that we wanted to build out this vision mm -hmm. of this third kind of cloud computing. And I feel like, I feel like we just got the like first five minutes of the intro to WebAssembly kind of course right there. So like, I feel like your, your, your <laughs> former professor experience just like it kind of came out right there because that was, <laughs> I, that was just beautifully, beautifully said. Um, and so, so that's, and that's a really good background, you know, kind of the intro to WASM and like a little bit of background about Fermion. Um, but in addition to just, so WASM, WebAssembly is, is something Fermion is all about, but like, what, what are you doing with it? Like, what, what are you making and building for people? So with any technology, right, the, when you're, when you're introducing a, an infrastructure technology, you kind of have to solve two major problems. Uh, one is, you know, you've got to, you've got to, fill in a void, right? And say, okay, here's the thing you couldn't do before. Here's a way of doing it that's going to be cost effective and stuff like that. And then the second part of that is you have to make it easy for people to build things that use that technology. If the technology is too esoteric or too difficult to use, people will simply say, 
regardless of the trade-offs, this is not worth my time to, or regardless of the benefits, it's not worth my time to make the trade-offs of, of uh, uh, complexity, right? Uh, so for us, you know, the, the, the big problem we were trying to accomplish was very much this idea that this tech, this technique called serverless computing has risen over mm -hmm. the last several years. And the, uh, the way I, the way I think about it, and this is probably, you know, you'll get a dozen different answers from a dozen different people. Or two, uh, two dozen me, answers from a dozen you know, different easiest, people. I mean, this is what philosophy is. So I'm totally comfortable in this situation. Um, but but also philosophy and me being able to provide my own definition with some degree of rigor or pretend rigor. And and to me, serverless computing really has to do with the programming style that a developer uses, mm -hmm. where they say, okay, instead of writing a long running server process that I'm going to start up and it's going to run for days, weeks, months, maybe even years, I am going to write just a serverless thing, a handler that takes one request and does one unit of work and returns one response and then shuts down. So the lifespan of this goes down from days, weeks, months to milliseconds, seconds, maybe minutes, right? I'm just going to do a chunk of processing and shut down. Now, there are some very delightful aspects of that as a software developer, and we'll get to that in a second. But when it comes to the operational aspects of this, because you're only running something for a small chunk of time, then suddenly when you're allocating your big cloud into little chunks, you're only allocating chunks for seconds or minutes at a time and not for days, months, years at a time, which means where most services in the world are sitting there 80% idle or more. So that's 80% of that space is just this, the, the, the server process sitting there running, waiting for requests to come in. Now, suddenly we have a way of computing in which we, we don't have to deal with the idle time. We don't have to allocate resources to sit idle. We can basically just allocate resources to handle the requests and then free up the resources, which means, long story short, we can pack a whole lot more applications, like orders of magnitude more applications per uh, physical piece of hardware somewhere in the cloud or physical piece of hardware somewhere on on-premises for you, right? And consequently, cut down cost, cut down energy consumption, cut down the amount of natural resources we need to carve out of the world and turn into chips and, and boards and wires and things like that. And so it becomes a far more efficient way of doing things. And that was really kind of the heart of what we were after when we first started exploring, is there a third way to do this cloud computing thing? And WebAssembly was ticking those checkboxes. Uh, and so, so that was, that's the problem we set out to solve. How do we how do we just absolutely nail this efficiency story, right? How do we take cloud from the behemoth and start to trim it down and say we can right size the way that we estimate our our cloud usage to the the amount of applications that we're running and the amount of space they need in a in a better way, right? That was a very convoluted way of saying we just want to make everything a lot more efficient, a lot cheaper, and ultimately, you know, start to ease up on our usage of electricity and natural resources and things like that. Uh, so that was that was part A. Then part B, we had to build a really good developer tool that made it easy for people to build mm -hmm. this. And the serverless paradigm is nice because it's less code for developers to write. And if we could build a really good user-facing tool, which is what Fermion's spin platform is, then developers spend less time creating new projects, less time coding, and less time deploying. And that is a net win for developers, right? They, they experience more productivity faster and with less ongoing stress. Happier developers is always a good thing. Ha that, that's it. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's all I'm really after. Happy, happier developers. <laughs> um, all right. So we talked philosophy, we've talked WebAssembly. Um, if we were going to do a WebAssembly and philosophy book, 
which I like, I don't know if, I mean, if actual philosophers hate those, but as someone who had to like teach, I don't know, Game of Thrones, having Game of Thrones and philosophy as, as a, a, you know, resource of people writing on that, that topic was always interesting to me. What top three things would you have in your, your web assembly and philosophy book? Oh, oh, wow. Um, I, I love those uh, whatever and philosophy books because essentially, you know, you're getting a philosopher with with all that background in one particular niche coming in and, and connecting something you're familiar with. And, you know, I think one interesting way to explore the kind of cross-platform thing, right? So the idea is you take a language, you compile it to a binary format, and you can run that on a, a variety of different mm -hmm. systems. There's something very Kantian about this. So Kant as Kant, you know, Kant is probably probably the world will never see another philosopher like Kant. Uh, he was an incredibly good thinker. He made some outstanding contributions to philosophy, some really marvelous mistakes that will keep us all busy trying to figure out where this went sideways. You know, this is like the philosopher's dream, right? Somebody who does, who produces a huge amount of very good stuff that that is also somewhat problematic. But one of the things he gets at ultimately is, look, um, we make a lot of statements about reality and we need to do this. There's a sense in which this is how humans survive in the world. There's a sense in which this is, we, we need an ethical system. We need mm -hmm. all of these things. But there's some incommensurability in the cosmos. There's some incommensurability in the construction of the universe in metaphysics that we as humans are just, if nothing else, not cognitively equipped to understand, right? There's something about the universe we just can't ever get at. And so WebAssembly actually ends up being a really interesting way to approach this because essentially you're saying we can build different languages, right? Perl, Python, C, Java, whatever. We can compile them to the same format, which is essentially something that in linguistic philosophy is an ongoing debate and has been for a long time, right? Can our different languages sort of, at the end of the day, can you boil them down to the same semantics and, and get approximately the same mm -hmm. meanings out of different languages? And there's, uh, there's tons of literature on this. And if you look at software development, you can actually see this play out in real time as people try and say, how do I do this in Python? How do I replicate this in Java, right? And sometimes the answer is, well, you can't really replicate it in Java, but here's how you get essentially the same thing. And in language and meaning, uh, you know, the, the same in, in philosophy of language and meaning, you're, you're really going after the same thing. Are, are we, do we hit incommensurability in the language aspect of things where two languages can't ever connect? But WebAssembly kind of says to us, okay, we might be able to get down to some kind of common base level binary format, right? Some base level set of instructions that is consistent, whether you're writing it in Java or Python, and you can connect a Java thing and a Python thing, and they can work together. But you can still do this without knowing the underlying processor architecture, which is essentially kind of like this bridge saying, you've got a logic layer here that somehow can't connect with the physical reality under, underneath it. And, and so there's somewhere in there, and I, this is totally raw and unfiltered, you're getting like Matt thinking off the top of his head about what he'd talk about. But there's something there that I think, oh, this would be so much fun to write a WebAssembly and philosophy article about what Kant was saying about the limits of human knowledge and, and, the, and, and, and the cosmos itself or the, the, the world itself. Um, I think that would be really, really interesting. I, f I feel uh, like there are people out there who, like you started with being like, we're never going to have another philosopher like Kant. And they're like, thank goodness. And now it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah we have we have to talk more about, about Kant. Like, it's, 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 but anyway, uh, interrupting again, that's... Kant, Kant is the one, the, the best advice I ever got for reading Kant was get yourself a ruler. And when you're reading Kant, 
take the ruler and put it under the line you're reading and scoot it down physically line by line as you read because it is totally i mean this guy wrote sentences that were a page long it is just like and i'm not even i'm not even exaggerating here he literally wrote sentences that yeah. were a page long is so frustrating to read but yes i'm sorry that was grad school me surfacing again i'm panicking already and thinking did i miss an exam any other must-haves for your your kind of wasm and philosophy approach uh, now, now, I'm, now I'm so sort of like absorbed on that one that I'm thinking, oh, I still have two more. Would I write something on ethics? Would I write something on this? I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to have to yeah. stick with the contents around this ethics one. In there, the and other then, two chapters yeah. for somebody else. <laughs> be like, this is my chapter. Your chapter will definitely be on that. And we'll, we'll have to get some other, yeah. other folks to kind of like fill in some of the gaps there. Yeah, yeah. And I shouldn't veer off too far into philosophy of language because it's not a subject I was ever much of an expert in. But it's the more I work on software programming languages, the more I think, oh, that was so fascinating. I wish I'd spent more time kind of reading uh, structuralist, post-structuralist uh, material and kind of bulking up on that. So maybe someday uh, I'll, I'll, I'll switch back and do that again. I don't know. There are people out there who think about that. Like, I, I know this because <laughs> they, they, they're out there. They're, prob- they're doing that work, their work for you, I feel like. I do. One thing that's kind of cool is that when I was in grad school, you know, years ago, um, computers and philosophy was sort of a verboten topic, right? Mm -hmm. It was not really the kind of thing that, again, because we were trying to keep that critical distance between, you know, the stalwart age old, you know, source of truth for all sciences and this new finagly computery thing over here. And now I think that's that's changed quite a bit in the last five or 10 years. And I, I think this is a very fertile area of research in a wide variety of disciplines, but in philosophy in particular. Yeah, very much so. And Matt, I think we could talk about this forever, but I think, I'm going to say we're at time <laughs> um, because I, I, I know we both have other places that, that, that we need to be. Um, thank you so much for, for taking time to, to speak with me today about Wasman and philosophy and and just other completely random things like related to those those topics uh this is this is the way this is this is my favorite kind of thing to do right this is the way i get all jazzed up sometime we'll just have a show where we read baudrillard lines back and forth and 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 compare interpretations <laughs> and we'll have an audience of like three uh, but those they'll, they'll also yeah, be like these are the lines you should have read why did you read those lines <laughs> But we'll buy you all drinks at the end. So, you know, maybe we can bolster the audience up to five with a... <laughs> wine and cheese. There will be wine and cheese. Wine and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Might take us a long time to figure out which cheese. But yeah, it sounds good. Thanks again for having me. This is just fantastic. Yeah, likewise. Uh, and with that, the ducks are out. <laughs>